Connors T. How are ye? We're Candle of Tales, we're lighting a candle, and we're telling a tale. So let's light her up. How he is, welcome to the first ever Candle of Tales podcast. I'm Aaron Hegarty, and I'm here with my sister. I'm Sarika Hegarty. So we founded Candle of Tales, what, four years ago now? About that, yeah. Because yeah. we both love stories. I grew up basically listening to my sister read me stories because I was very slow at reading. And we are both from Cork. I like, I like your use of the past tense there. Very good at reading now. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but we're both from Cork, which I want to mention because it's important. It is important that we're both from Cork. Well, you know, Munster is the provincial area for, that's characterised rather with creativity and art and storytelling and the gift of the gab and shy talk. Yeah, yeah. We're going to pretend that that's why it's important to say that we're from Cork. That's why I would like to say <laughs> Anyway, we started telling stories about four years ago and we founded this company called Candlelit Tales to keep this oral tradition tradition of storytelling going in Ireland. Yeah, we did. I mean, it is going in Ireland, but we decided, uh, you know, there are storytellers in Ireland aside from us, but we, we kind of brought something new to it in that Aaron uh, invited Ruo O'Shea, who's a musician, to come along and play music with us. And from there, we kind of started evolving a, a little bit of a different take on storytelling. Well, we found lots of different versions of all of these stories and we found our way of telling them. And we found that with the music, it just transported us and people in the room into a different level of immersion into the stories so we really hold on to telling these stories with evocative music that creates kind of an atmosphere that's just lovely really that's our yeah it's nice that's kind of our thing it's kind of our thing I guess really yeah yeah it's become our thing we've we've spent the last four years kind of you know working with musicians and defining that and defining a show that kind of blends these different genres and, and makes something that we think is pretty cool we like to experiment with different ways of telling stories different angles of getting at it an old story, crossing different genres and allowing different, I guess, audiences from around Ireland and all over the world, really, gain access to these stories because we want these stories to be accessible to everyone because when they're locked in the book, they're just, they're not much crack, like. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the problems that I'd have with, with um, you know, the way that mythology is kind of passed down. Once it gets into books, there's two things that tend to happen. One is that it gets told for children, where they take out all the sex and violence, which is, you know, editing out, editing out all the good bits, frankly. Can't be taking out the sex and violence. <laughs> like, what else are we here for? Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, but uh, they, they, it gets kind of boulderized and simplified for children, which is fine. Children's stories are good, but like, you know, not if you're an adult. You want something a little bit more interesting. I disagree, and but anyway. The other thing. <laughs> I'm a giant child. <laughs> That is true. The other thing that tends to happen is that if they don't get edited and simplified for children, they just become incredibly dense and written in a kind of an archaic and stilted sounding language because it's, you know, certainly with the Irish stuff, it's in translation. Um, And it can be just a barrier for people getting at the actual stories, the characters, the plots and just what's really cool and interesting about them. And I guess... Seeing as we're siblings, we kind of grew up, this is a question people ask us actually a lot. And this is what we're hoping to open the gates with this podcast as well, for people to ask us more questions about these stories, why we like them and how we got into them, I suppose, is a question we get asked a lot. Our father used to tell us stories, not necessarily not necessarily myths or anything, but he used to make up stories. Um, yeah. Hi, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> and 
Oh, I guess his his brothers were all just great storytellers. Life on the farm, what was going on, every name, every detail about the cow that got blowed and all these amazing stories that are just so visceral and took you to a different time and a place, mm. you know. And that's where I really value storytelling and our Irish heritage of, of storytelling. And that's where we kind of, well... I guess you introduced me to myths then by reading me a Cucullin story when I was way too young. Yeah, I was also possibly way too young for a lot of the things that I was reading when I was a child because, um, you know, our, the same man, Tony, started to do a degree in psychotherapy when I was in my teens and I read all of his books. Um, and and a lot of the kind of, you know, Jungian stuff, the Robert Bly, the Joseph Campbell, the the, you know, all of these kinds of writers writing about the importance of myth. I, I started getting really into that stuff. And then when I found Irish myth, uh, that was a bit of a different thing for me because, I mean, there were two reasons, really. One is that, you know, I'm Irish and it, there's a real sense of immediacy when you're reading mythology about the place that you live in mm. because you can go to Rath Crocon. You can go to Awan Maka. They are places that are in, in Ireland. In Na- it's in Tulsk and Navan. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, like, you know, these are places that are very, very directly accessible uh, that we'll be mentioning in the story today. Um, and, and the other thing for me that was really interesting in Irish myth was that I'd always kind of had this idea growing up that, you know, f- feminism or really any role for women that wasn't in a kitchen chopping up vegetables and having babies was a really modern invention. Mm. <laughs> and... When you read Irish mythology or when you when you start listening to Irish mythology, the women are queens, they're warriors, they're druids, they're brehens, they're satirists. They do all of the things. And they're the trainers more frequently of all the heroes. as well. Absolutely. And they also cook and have babies because those are important things to do. Um, but it's it's uh, yeah, it was that was that was something that was that really grabbed me as a as a girl and as a young woman. And that's something that I really am. I'm fascinated by to this day yeah and I guess my background as I never really uh, grew up properly I just always acted True. acted the bollocks uh, kept acting and kept acting the bollocks uh, so I, I'm a performer and so I'd, I'd get scripts and I'd, I'd delve into the world of the imagination and the unknown and trying to portray a story in a character arc and I guess what I found about stories especially Irish stories just a simple stripped back most common way of understanding or hearing a story just really always for me anyway in my own subjective experience everyone else is very different is that I just get completely immersed into these stories and I they remind me to be human again you know get that connection back to being into this uh, I don't know human condition that we kind of bypass in our day to day mundane crack we yeah. forget to kind of you know feel stuff so that's me um, so one thing that I want to say before what we're, what we're going to do in these podcasts uh, you know as Aaron was saying this is a new podcast and this is a new thing that we're doing in Candlelit Tales and we really want to hear from people about what you'd like to hear and questions you'd like to ask us but our starting idea is that we're basically going to have a bit of a chat and uh, play you guys a story yeah. and uh, if you like what we're doing here um you can you can support us. We've always tried to keep these sh- these stories um, and our, our live shows as much as possible. We keep them free entry and uh, pay what you can. So the idea being that anybody can access the stories. But 
if you do have a little bit of change and you like what we're doing and you believe in sharing these stories the same way that we do, you can support us. You can support us by sharing this podcast with all your friends and you can support us directly by going to Patreon. You can become our patron. Patron. Damn it. <laughs> you almost landed that joke. Well done. Oh, wow. um, yeah, you can become our patron on Patreon. Um, patron or pat- on Patreon. Or, or our patron on Patreon. But whatever you do, don't patronise us. No, no, we don't like that. We don't like that. So... Guys, this is, like we said a few times now, a podcast trying to get these stories out and every time is going to be a bit different. So we're going to record some stories for you in podcast way with music being attached to it. This time we're going to go and play you a, a story that we did in live um, performance in Whelan's on October 22nd on a Monday night and the place was packed out of it because loads of people loved I wanted to hear this story. Absolutely. Uh, the show's called Shadows of the Tawn and it's our retelling of the Tawn Bokuna, the cattle raid of Cooley. So we kind of started this process four years ago, over five nights telling the Tawn because anyone who does know much about Irish mythology, and I feel I should apologise for my extremely husky voice today because I have a very bad cold. I can just hear it again. I'm just like, oh, there's the croak. I'm not usually this croaky. But... <laughs> We have been kind of working on this story kind of almost for four years in a way in the background, in the kind of subconscious. It's been kind of stewing away. Yeah, well, we've, we've done it again and again. We've come back to it again and again. And it was the first one that we told because we, you know, I just latch on to things from time to time and get really um, obsessed with them. And stubborn. one of the things that I latched on to and got really stubborn and obsessed with was the fact that the tone is traditionally told in Ireland in winter after dark. And if you've ever been to Ireland in winter, there's a lot of time after dark. Uh, it is it is currently about four thirty in the in the afternoon, and it's getting dark here in uh, in the middle of November. Great crack, and uh, that's that's only going to get worse. So Ireland Ireland is very 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 dark in the winter time. There's a lot of night time, and uh, in the days before electri- electrical lighting and lamps, this was what people did. They got together, they gathered around in a house, and somebody told a story, and this was kind of the winter story. So the Shanachies, in my imagination, would go to these villages and t- spin this yarn and it would last for ages because there's so many stories there's, like any mythology there's just constant diversions transgressions other characters other character stories their own little narratives that build into the one overarching narrative and it's hard to find a through line and so that's what we kind of yeah. like doing is picking our favourite bits out of various texts and all sorts of sources and just picking our favourite bits and so what you're about to hear is the first half of the shadowy con in Whelan's. Yeah, so we'll be back with you afterwards. Enjoy. You. Right, we have got a long, long, long ways back before this tale took place to a time before the Celts came here, right? Back long, long, long ago when the magical Tuatha Dé Friends, the swineherd of Munster, his name was Brook. Brook. Brook and Brook were great friends. 
rolling, growling, snarling and snapping at one another, but still there was not a bit between them. They were spotted in Ireland in the forests. Great stags clashing their spreading antlers together, their sharp hooves flying as they felled and reared and crashed. No matter how they tested their strength, there was no difference between them. was matched in every way. So great sea monsters they became then, with scales like shields and teeth like swords. They reddened the waves, the blood they drew from one another, churning the ocean into foam. Still, they were equal in every way. And so they became small, tiny little eels. Agile sliding around with one another, trying to rip the other apart with sharp, flying teeth and all the colors of the rainbow on their scales. And then a heavy rain fell, and the pool they were in was flooded, and they were washed into the current of a heavy river, and they were flown down, and in the current they were swirled around, and one eel was pushed one way, and the other eel was pushed another way, and into the sea they were swirled around, and around they swam, searching with hate for one another, until Ireland began to change all around them, but eels know nothing of Ireland, and so many years passed, that they forgot who and what they were, but eels know only the cold waters, and then Maeve went watering cows in Connacht. At the same time, Dara of Cooley watered his cows in Ulster. And two different cows in two different provinces, provinces let down their heavy heads and licked water. And in that same lick that was lapped down into the bellies of these two cows, these eels now swam. Their form changed once more, but their spirits remained. And out of those cows, two bulls the story really begins though, properly speaking, in Cruachan Ice, which was the stronghold of Queen Maeve of Connacht. Now Maeve, as well as being the queen, was as strong and as sharp as a dagger with masses of red gold hair. She thought she was the best queen in the world. Her name meant the one who intoxicates men. And she did. Now one morning she was lying in bed beside her consort and husband, Oliel, and he took her in his hands and he gave her a little squeeze and he said, Isn't it true what they say? It's lucky the woman who's married to a wealthy man. And Maeve said, Oh, it is, but I don't know what made you think of that. <laughs> and Oliel said, well, well, you know, I mean, I am the brother of the High King, and my other brother is the King of Lancaster, which is where I'm from. <laughs> <laughs> As you might be able to tell from the accent. <laughs> I think I was a pretty good catch, you know. <laughs> 
Well, you didn't do too badly for yourself either, given that I'm the queen of Connor. And I was wealthy long before I met you. To which Aurelian replied, Yeah, but your wealth was the wealth of a woman, and so any warrior could have come and taken it off you at any time.
Tinker or McNassa of Ulster had a bitter rivalry spanning decades. They really didn't like each other. Crowe actually tried to marry Maeve and other things, but it was a long story. They were exes, essentially. They didn't get on with each other. They'd also killed each other's sons in a battle gone by, so they really didn't look like each other. <laughs> but when Maeve heard there was a match for the Whitehorn Bull, she did not hesitate. <coughs> Nothing would do her but that she owned the Brown Bull of Cooley, the Don Quinn. So she sent up a cohort of messengers up to Dara of Cooley. And they went to Dara and they offered him a land, a title, friendship, the friendship of May 5, which means exactly what it sounds like it means. <laughs> if he would loan them the brown bull to stud for just a year. And Dara of Cooley was delighted at these overtures. He was a made man now. So he welcomed them in, gave them a great feast. And it was all going swimmingly till too many drinks were drunk. One of the messengers said, Sure, Robert, it's a good thing altogether that he said he'd give the bull to me. But if he hadn't, she'd have come and she'd have just taken it. At which point, Dara raged up. He threw all the men out, flat out they lay, and he said, Do you really think? <laughs> <laughs> we may, may come out here and take what you can. Between her and the red and the red bull of Cooley lay the red branch snakes, the heroes of Ulster, the greatest army in Ireland. Even their sons, the boys' troop, might stand against any army we might send. So if she wants the red bull of Cooley, let her come and take them if she can. Hey. <laughs> So when May heard that her messengers had been unsuccessful, particularly that they'd been unsuccessful because it was just a stupid thing, she was not delighted. But she had to concede that annoyingly Dara had a point. The Red Branch were the greatest warriors in Ireland. There was no other army like them. There was nothing she could do. They looked like they had been through the wars, chewed up and spat back out again. They were ragged and wounded, and they had fire burning in their eyes, and they were led by Fergus McGrory, the former king of Ulster, who'd been king there before Crowhorn MacNessan. Now, Fergus went to Queen Maeve and offered to pledge his loyalty to her, saying that he wanted revenge on Crowhorn for breaking his word. Maeve said, well, Lining up very nicely with some unrelated plans of my own. <laughs> but tell me now, how is any army that I gather going to go up against even half of the Red Branch and they in their stronghold there at Owen Manor? 
Lucy, said Lewis, was once the king of Ulster, but the kingship of me of Ulster was stolen away from me by Groor Macnasa and the trickery and cunning of his mother. Now I didn't begrudge him that, but in his early days he made one terrible mistake. You see, he offended a goddess named Napata. He forced her to race against his prize horses while she was heavily pregnant, just to prove a stubborn point. She still won the race, mind you, but she lost the twins she had inside of them. Stillborn they would. And she was so angry at the men of Ulster for allowing this to happen that she put a curse on them. She cursed the warriors, saying that when they needed their strength the most, all of the fighting men of Ulster would be struck down by the pains of childbirth for nine days and nine nights, and lie sleeping for nine days after that. And the curse would take effect as soon as they were old enough to grow a beard in their chin, and last for nine generations. Now this, too, I could have forgiven and did at the time, until he broke his word to me and killed the sons of Ishna, who I had sworn to protect. Now, when they heard that any army she gathered would march against Ulster, uh, who were struck down by the pain of a woman in childbirth, she thought that was just delicious. <laughs> so Maeve sent out messengers again all around Ireland, this time to her allies. And Maeve had been many years building alliances in Ireland. She had six sons. She named them all Manya, because who has the time? <laughs> <laughs> and she fostered them with different families in Ireland, powerful families, hand-picked for their wealth and prosperity and the strength of their armies. And it was on these allies she now called. And every last one of them answered her message saying that their payment would be to march through an Ulster that was completely undefended, taking and pillaging whatever they wanted. They all came, because when Queen Maeve whistles, you drop what you are doing and you go. There a great army gathered together on the plains of Crookonnell, their different coloured banners snapping in the wind. Every one of the provinces came forth with an army, and Maeve was so good at this, she gathered all surveying this great army that was laid out below her. 
as she was driving along, a mist and a shimmer came up in between the two horses pulling her chariot. And there, sitting suddenly, was a little fairy woman with golden hair. And she said, I have a prophecy for you, Queen Maeve. All of your army out there below, while you will come back from this quest unharmed and you will get your objective, as for them, I see them all crimson. I see them all red. And Maeve said, well, well, look again. It must be the setting sun in your eyes. There's no one to oppose them in Ulster. But again the fairy woman looked, and again she said, I see them all crimson. I see them all red. Maeve said, well, explain to me how that can be when there is no warrior of Ulster to oppose them. The little woman said, I see them all crimson. I see them all red. And I see running in among them a little dark hound. They are falling before him like wheat before the scythe. their marching orders and at the moment their feet hit the ground and they all started to march for Ulster every warrior in Ulster who was old enough to grow a hair on his face was struck down by the pains of a woman in childbirth when they came to the border of Ulster they saw a very strange sight there was a standing stone with an oak tree folded tight around in a great knot and in own writing on the said, let no man pass this point unless he can do the same feat that I have done. And it was signed by the Hound of Ulster, at which point Maeve turned to Fergus. 
must be Lulov, father, one of the two of the Danim, the shining one of them, the great king. And so he was always the Tanta, and he was a child prodigy. He was brilliant at everything. He grew up clever and keen and overcame every challenge with ease. I was one of the men who fostered and taught him. He came to Elmaka and joined the boys' troop at an incredibly young age. He took on three times 50 of them with a hurling ball and, and beat them all in the game of hurling. It was amazing. Three times 50 against him. It was fast. He, he turned his skill onto a sword and spear. And so devastating was he that he managed to kill Cullen's great hound to nine men. That's a whole back. The great beast was massive, but he killed him, the wee fucker. And uh, he took the place of him and so took on the name Ku Cullen. Oh, 
going out in groups to meet this foe, this hound, this nemesis. The lone groups came back. That next day, all they heard were shrieks and calls from all around the surrounding field. And so they went out in larger and larger groups, determined to outnumber this one single warrior. Yet none of those men came back. Till the Galena, so bright and bronze were they, the men from Leinster, the famous fighting faction sent from Olia's brother. Their shining hair just so out to hunt down this hound, and when the men went out after them, then they saw an oak tree dug up and driven down into the ground, and the heads of their comrades stuck into the roots of the tree, all high dripping blood down the side of the tree. They were fearful then, and every one of them terrified. That third day, they huddled so close together, they began to bump into one another, no man slept that previous night for this fear of this hound that harried them and they heard it running feet going around them getting them closer and closer in they began to imagine this creature in the darkness this howling hound that harried them this monster from the dark shadows they were huddled so close together they forgot all about sleeping and taking what they wanted survival now was the only thing on their minds they began to tread on each other's toes as tension so tensions mounted there we are now we're just going to pause it right there because Cucullin is about to enter the scene and next time we'll be talking a lot more about Cucullin we'll hear the second half of this live show in our next podcast and we'll talk a little bit more about the hero but for now absolutely uh, for now we're just going to take this opportunity to pause and reflect on what we've heard and uh, you know everybody who hears these myths will be struck by different things and I think that reflection part is, is for me it's one of the most important things about listening to mythology seeing what actually resonates with you and what doesn't mm. so we're probably just going to talk about what resonates with us certainly and, and just to mention as well that uh, we mentioned or we, we highlighted a couple of and summarised a couple of the pre-stories the pre-skelta the background stories to the tone in there two of which are the curse of Maka and Deirdre of the Sorrows of the Sons of Ishnach. those two stories we'll, we'll get to in later podcasts and, and kind of they're great stories in their own and they lead into this epic and this journey but you don't necessarily have to know them to enjoy the story as I hope you've found out yeah I mean as we said before the, the tone was the story that got you through the Irish winter mm. which is a lot of dark and a lot of cold and a lot of sitting around the fire listening to po- listening to stories not, not, not podcasts well, those two not podcasts. those two specific stories basically explain why you know Fergus the king of Ulster is in Connacht and how he essentially betrays his older province by by telling Maeve the secret the curse of Maka. Yeah, the all the things that lead up to that. There's a lot of lead up. There's a lot of, um, yeah, there's some background stories and we will be getting to those in later weeks. But for now, let's talk about what we heard here. Because there's Fergus and we'll be getting on to Cullen and, and there's lots of characters in this and don't worry if the names kind of go over your head or if you're trying, you're struggling to follow it all the time because you hold on to what's important. 
and what resonates you, with you is the important part so don't worry about all of the detail I suppose that's one important thing to mention and the one character I want to look back at is one of my favourite characters of all mythology and that is Queen Maeve she's fascinating she's an amazing powerhouse her, her descriptions of her beauty are amazing her sexual appetite is constantly reflected on but oftentimes in different versions of stories she becomes quite villainized. Yeah, and I think that that's, that's kind of a, a thing that happens a lot in stories about women and around women that, you know, it's definitely something that we're used to in modern times. Uh, a lot of the fairy tales that we would have grown up on, the more active the woman, the worse she is, hmm. you know, the, the, the wicked witch versus the passive princess. And the passive princess is good because she's done nothing. Exactly. And the, the one who does something and takes some agency about it is is also and, bad. And the the moral of the story, intentional or not, is that is that good women shut up and don't do anything. And this is the curious thing about Irish myth, especially of the, like the good v bad thing. You don't really get a moral. No, you don't. And I think we'll we'll maybe talk about that a, a little bit more next time as well when we're talking about Cú Cullen because. For all that he is a great warrior uh, that we're about to meet in this story, he's not exactly a paragon of, you know, uh, restraint and virtue himself. I guess that's why we we love these myths and that's why I love Queen Maeve so much because she, she goes out and she takes what she wants because for her it's about, like, I guess, you know, maintaining some form of clarity over her position and her her leadership of her, of, her, of her province whereas that's been kind of attacked by her partner Ollie mm. and she has the grounds to basically stand up to him and like she hears the prophecy that her entire army is going to be killed but she says fucking march on anyway I'm going to get the brown bullet cooling like that's terrible I mean I think that's the point at which people listening to this will be going what are you talking about she's black and white she's awful <laughs> <laughs> I mean like they'd have a point like it's it's so easy to villainize her and that's why I think we want to talk about her so much because it's too easy almost you've got to look yeah. at like the other side of her what's the flip coin of it you know why is she also kind of a powerhouse why is she kind of an archetype and a, mo- a role model in some ways for for women or yeah I mean I this know. is this is this is the interesting thing I think the thing that you've got to keep in mind is that in the culture that these stories came out of this this these stories come out of a very hierarchical culture now Ireland is kind of famous for not being particularly hierarchical these days in fact we we very much don't like it when people act like they're better than the rest of us notions um, you notions. notions exactly uh, so that was not the case in kind of medieval Ireland and in the Ireland you know as I said from which these stories came this was a much much more hierarchical culture you had, in fact, very intricate kinds of hierarchies. Everything was clan-based and your status was both your status in the clan and the clan status in relation to all the other clans. Uh, you had seven degrees of king and seven degrees of bard and seven degrees of lord. And some of the lower lords were on the same status level as, you know, or a higher status level than some of the, or rather, some of the higher <laughs> lords. I got myself confused. Whoa. Some of the higher lords were, would, would, like, outrank some kings even explaining that I usually I always get tangled up That's so fair. this was just this was the thing about about ancient Ireland is that it was an incredibly it was a very there was this, all of these complicated interlocking interrelated hierarchies and everybody knew their position 
and it was important for everybody to know your position. And this comes up over and over again in, in these myths, particularly in the Ulster cycle, this whole idea of who gives their name first mm. as being like a status indicator because the person who gives their name last is the highest ranking. And, and that, that becomes a really important plot point in a couple of the, of, of the, uh, of the stories. But it's just kind of, I think it's worth mentioning that like, this, is a, this is a culture in which it's not a, a whimsical decision of hers to reassert her status. It's actually kind of crucial that she reassert her status because her status reflects the status of all of the people that she's ruling. And it reflects it reflects on her family. It reflects on her clan. It reflects that there's all these relationships going on here where it's very important for people to know that Queen Maeve is the one who's in charge and Queen Maeve is the queen. And you also get that funny little thing, like I mentioned, um, you know, we, we talk sometimes about the law in Ireland and uh, the Brehan law in Ireland being quite progressive. Oh, yeah. And this romantic notion that people always have about men were totally equal with women and women had the same rights as men and all that kind of crap. But it wasn't that brilliant, was it? Like, it wasn't entirely egalitarian. Uh, what's usually said about the Breton law in medieval Ireland is that compared to other legal systems at that time, uh, compared to, oh, sorry, there's a little bit of a creaking going on because I'm I'm wearing a boot and it's creaking inside of my chair. And I'm trying very hard to stop. <laughs> so I apologise for that. Uh, what's said about the Breton law is that compared to other uh, other legal systems in Europe at the time, the Irish legal system was way more egalitarian. So women were they were explicitly not equal to men. Uh, in that the this was a this was a system that was very much based on paying of fines and the the amount of your fine was correlated with the the status of the person that you had wronged or your status as the person who had wronged somebody else and and women's fines were lower than the fines for men mm. so it was very definitely not egalitarian but it was definitely also much more pro- progressive than most most of Europe at the time so in and most of Europe like you know, women couldn't own property. They were basically chattel. Not to be confused with the word cattle, though. No, Aaron, not to be confused with the word cattle. Because women definitely don't like when you call them cattle. <laughs> I've, I've made that mistake you've, before. You've made that mistake many times before. <laughs> no, I, I, so like, I definitely read that a woman could divorce a man if she wasn't getting satisfied. Yeah, yeah, that, was, that? that, was, that was true. And I think that, that goes to the, this kind of idea of, you know, Queen Maeve's sexuality, some scholars will say that this was sort of a way of discrediting a powerful woman. But I think if you look at some of those things like there are in the Breton law about like it's OK for a woman to divorce her husband if he becomes impotent and isn't uh, able to keep her satisfied. They had a very different way of looking at female sexuality. Isn't that, like, that's one of the reasons I love this story. I love seeing women light up when you talk about Maeve's sexual appetite and how she had to have seven men to please her in a day. Uh, or Fergus McGroy, who was, you know, had a, a very big sword, as you love mentioning. Um, it's a terrible joke, but I love it. Terrible. Or he was what Fergus of the horses, but he wasn't very good at horses. Yeah. Um, terrible jokes, but like, I guess what what what's fascinating for me is like people love hearing that because it's like it's a shock. You don't get to hear that in stories or, or fairy tales or myths. Usually, you don't get to hear about a woman's mad desire. You hear about in Greek mythology. You're constantly hearing about Zeus going off and shagging someone, or yeah. you know, you're constantly hearing all this like domination from men going out and trying to find sex and getting getting pleasure out of women by it. But you don't hear the whole needing to be satisfied element. 
yeah, you don't, you tend to, the way that sexuality is framed in, in modern society is, is pretty dysfunctional. And it does tend to be, as you say, like that idea of sex is something that men get from women mm-hmm. and that women are not supposed to give to men rather than being a mutually pleasurable thing. So it's, it's we've got a very weird, I think it's always worth look, reflecting on your own culture as well and how, how weird and warped it can be in some ways. Like we've got a very warped idea of, of sex and sexuality in our in our culture. And I think Queen Maeve's character is very indicative of that. Yeah, it's mad to be honest. And like it's really like I think, well, again, everyone's subjective experience of, of a myth is is their own personal kind of what 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 they react to and how they interpret and what and that's what myths are supposed to do. And I'm interested, not that this is like this is right or wrong in any way and you know, by all means write, write, us in, write into us and correct us or, or ask us some different offer us some different points of view but like is it is it good for society to hear or, or is it good for women to be hearing about this kind of role model of a, of a sexual deviant essentially <laughs> she's like she's a mad deviant she'd be a polyamorous now if she was alive I mean <laughs> I, I think some polyamorous people would be would be not happy to be called deviants, but uh, I mean, no, yeah, come no. On. All right, uh, I like. I do think. I do think there's a there's a value to that kind of representation to seeing characters and to seeing a character like Maeve absolutely owning her sexuality and like never ever once in any version of the ton that I've ever read does anybody throw that back at her. Yeah, it's just it's a well known fact, and that's it. Like. Yeah, that's just a thing about Maeve that everybody knows. And she keeps on offering her friendship of her thighs to lads all she, over the She she rather famously, uh, when trying to get Ferdia to to fight Cucullin in some versions of that story, offers to sleep with him, as, as well as offering her daughter in marriage to him, <laughs> which how, is how like how could he not? How could he not? That's a that's a weird thing to it's offer Maeve. To that offer. was a weird thing it's to offer. Thing. But again, I guess. For, I think again this is totally personal but I think it's very interesting for men for boys to be hearing about s- women's sexual appetite as well because it's like it just it just levels the playing field a bit because certainly for teenage boys certainly as a teenager I was going through life not knowing that women had this as much as a desire to have sex as I did <laughs> you know I just thought it was like I didn't you know I, I don't think it's talked about and certainly as a teenager it's just like you not you don't know that women masturbate or that there's there's there, there's a hunger on both sides. It's kind of like you get sex off them, as as, as we've mentioned, and it's like I, I think no in no other real mythology have I found it just really obvious and open that both sexes just want to go out there and get the right. Like that's basically it, isn't it? I mean, sure. <laughs> what I think Aaron is trying to say is that he likes it when women ask him out. That's t- not <laughs> what I was going for, but I think we should probably leave it there. <laughs> Okay, well, this podcast was produced and edited by Oshin Ryan. The music in Whelan's was by Rue O'Shea, Oshin Ryan and Audrey Trainer, and myself and Aaron did sound effects. And we want to give a great big thank you to everybody who's helped Candlelit Tales, this storytelling company, from its fledgling start four years ago to grow and grow and grow. And we've had so many people offer us help in music, in storytelling, in producing, in loads of different avenues of creativity that we can't even list you all right now. So thank you hugely. If you'd like to be one of those people and help support us, whether it be by listening to it or sharing this podcast with people who you might think would like it, or by giving us those that sweet, sweet money, 
<laughs> that we do love. Uh, we like legal tender. I mean, it just helps. We don't love it. That's not a good thing to say in the podcast. But we do need it. But um, we do need it. Because this recorder and mic took us ages to buy because it's expensive. But we finally, <laughs> we finally got the damn thing. So we want to do more of this and we want to keep on making the time to do this as well. And if you want to help us do that, you can support us on Patreon for like the price of a pint if you think it's right. You can find us on social media. Look for hashtag Candlelit Tales and hashtag Candlelit Tales podcast. And we'd love you to get in touch. You can email us your comments, questions and stories. Info at candlelittales.ie is the email address. Go to the website though, www.candlelittales.ie. Everything is on there. And if you'd like to book a live Candlelit Tales show, you can contact us at bookings at candlelittales.ie. Thank you very much. See you next time.